part of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com. Retinal and oral scan confirmed. Good day, listener. The information you are about to receive has been classified top priority. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to understand that during this podcast, all manner of information regarding the Mission Impossible franchise, including the most recent films, will be disclosed. This spoiler warning will self-destruct in 5 seconds. It's Music Impossible. Well, hopefully, if you watch this on YouTube, it's uh, youtube.com slash C slash the word double, the letter P, the word media. You found it enjoyable, my little opening intro there, where I peeled off a piece of paper that was printed like Tom Cruise's face and peeled it off and said, music impossible. And then there was still tape stuck on my nose. That was not planned. However, I thought that it made it funnier, the fact that the tape was still stuck to my nose. I'm cheesy that way. Uh, you, you may not have enjoyed the humor. And if you're on the audio podcast, be sure to check out the Double P Media YouTube. Uh, a little bit more on that later. But welcome to Bustin' Blockbusters. My name is Matt. You can call me Matthew if I'm in trouble. That's what my mother does. That's also what many of my fellow podcasters do. They call me Matthew when they think that I've screwed up. Or you can call me Hey You, or you can call me Double M. That's what Bubba likes to call me and Catfish likes to call me. Today is a totally music-centric episode. It's the one thing that I have a little bit more expertise than your average podcaster, I do believe. And we're looking at the entire franchise of Mission Impossible, the movies, the Tom Cruise franchise of Mission Impossible. And we're going to actually take a look at the original theme, which was made for the TV series by Lalo Schifrin. And then we're also going to rank my top five scoring moments from the entirety of the movie franchise. And as we get started, I think it's really important to say these things before I start any music podcast, because you might be brand new to the way that I talk about music in podcasts. And if you have been here before, then you already know that I typically like to break down film scoring into four key elements that make it either emotionally effective or effective in the way that it's supposed to within the film. And those four elements are timbres, which means the instruments that are being played, melodic shape, which means what directions do the notes go, uh, how much distance is in between each of the notes. Then we have rhythm, tempo, and subdivision, all as one category. And, and that is basically how many beats are in a full count, how those beats are made smaller or larger, and by what kind of fractions. Basically, are they in, divided into larger or smaller units? And the tempo, of course, the speed at which the music is played. And finally, harmony is the fourth aspect, and that's kind of the emotional fuel that sits underneath and supports the melody or can work independently on its own with no melody. Now, there were five composers that have composed over the six films that we have so far of the Mission Impossible franchise. We'll start off with the original one, Danny Elfman, 
you may of course know him for scoring Batman or of course the the theme for the Simpsons or maybe you know his score from Beetlejuice. Mission Impossible 2 brought on another heavyweight. That was Hans Zimmer. What franchise has this guy not been a part of? He's been huge. He's been part of some of the biggest franchises in movie history like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, of course Inception, he did the score for that. He did the theme for the award-winning Crown on Netflix. Many, many DC movie scores uh, like Man and Steel. And I know he did Wonder Woman 84. Actually, his credit role is just too long to, to truly give it credit. But so those are some of the big ones. And then we have uh, Mission Impossibles 3 and 4. This is the only composer who's done multiple Mission Impossible films so far. Though I do believe that Lauren Balfe is going to be doing at least Mission Impossible 7 and possibly also Mission Impossible 8 which will make him the one with the most film composing credits for the franchise. But right now that belongs to Michael Giacchino, who is one of my favorite composers. Actually, I love all of these guys, but I first got to know Michael Giacchino's work with Alias, but he really settled into being a household name with the television series Lost. He's done the MCU Spider-Man movies. I think he did a Doctor Strange in there as well. He did the Star Trek movie reboots. He's famous for the the Up movie as well. Just so many credits to this guy's name as well. And again, he did Mission Impossible 3 and 4. For Rogue Nation, this guy's kind of an outlier because I did not really know who he was. I enjoyed his work with uh, Mission Impossible 5, Rogue Nation. Uh, His name is Joe Kramer, and he is probably the least known of the composing Uh, alumni of the Mission Impossible franchise. He did also do Tom Cruise's Jack Reacher movie. So there is definitely a Tom Cruise connection in there. And then finally, the most recent film, and what I think will be the next two films, is one of my favorite composers as well, Lauren Balfe. Recently here on Bustin' Blockbusters, we did The Wheel of Time, and he was the composer for that. On Podcast Lilibet, one of the other Double P podcasts that covers The Crown, he was the composer for season two of that. If you're into the MCU, he composed for the Black Widow movie. And, of course, Holly and I are very familiar with him as well from his Dark Materials, the BBC slash HBO series, uh, which I think is coming out with its final season uh, sometime later this year as well. Uh, I have not heard if he's pinning for that, but I, I'm assuming since he did seasons one and two that he will return for season three there. Uh, but he did the most recent and will likely do the next two uh, Mission Impossible films as well. So there's a little bit of background about the composers themselves for these franchises. I'm going to be picking five, my top five favorite scoring moments from these films. I'm not going to tell you yet which composers have made the cut. Uh, But before we do, I do want to break down the original theme because a lot of the stuff that you hear in these movies, regardless of which of these composers it is, is based on Layla Schifrin's original theme, which was composed for the television show. So Layla's theme is pretty distinct and pretty iconic, and it sounds like this.
one of the things that this theme does, of course, that you notice right off the bat, is it feels like the beats fit weird together. That's because it's in what we call mixed meter. And mixed meter is anything that we can't divide by two. As humans, this is very interesting, but as humans, we like to be able to subdivide our beats. I guess it's because we find it easier to dance to, even though you'll find lots of dances that have weird numbered steps that aren't divisible by two. It just seems like when we have a beat to follow that counts that out and makes it dividable by two, we tend to feel more easier at it. This piece is in five, four, which is not easy to subdivide, even though we tend to feel it in two ways that we feel like we can subdivide in three and in two just added together like a measure of three and a measure of two. And that is very interesting in the fact that even when we do the divide of three, which you would think is not divisible by two, those first two beats that when we divide the three, we are dividing it in half with what we call dotted quarters. And all of this is technical jargon that you don't really need to know, but it still makes it feel like it's two. Yet when you add the other two beats, which are divisible by quarter notes, it feels like they happen faster. And so that makes everything feel off kilter. The piece harmonically is in minor. And minor chords tend to make us feel darker or sad or scared. Those are the three kinds of emotions that typically come with minor, as opposed to major, which tends to make us feel more hope or happiness or comfort at very least. And because this is in minor, it's telling us our characters are in serious situation. Now, the timbres are another thing that really identify it actually with the time period that it was created. It was very, <laughs> I hate to use this word, but it was very hip to use congos, to use flutes, to use all of these instruments that we associate with the time period of the 60s. And that's exactly uh, why those were used. But it also kind of ingrained in future composers that that was the kind of sound that facilitated spy stuff. Now, Mission Impossible primarily used a piano as kind of its rhythmic base, whereas, say, something like the James Bond films used the guitar. But they both had that same kind of sound to them, uh, that was very 50s and 60s and congos and big brass hits, uh, which exemplify the excitement of the missions. And one last thing that I find really interesting about this particular piece is the way that it finishes, because it finishes unresolved. The bass note goes out of the key, actually. It signifies a, a note that isn't doesn't normally fit in the key, major or minor. And the chord on top of it feels like it leads somewhere, or at least that it needs to lead somewhere. But we don't get that where it leads to. And so that creates the expectation. Are they going to be able to get through the mission? Uh, which I love as well. So. That's a brief breaking down of Layla Schifrin's theme, 
which is a marvelous theme and was became iconic. And of course, all of these films use that theme in themselves and the different composers have taken different ways to dress it up. Um, sometimes they've actually even changed the meter. Uh, I think in the Hans Zimmer case, that was the case. And, and sometimes it's been reharmonized and all kinds of different ways to treat this melody, but it is the basis of all of the scoring that was done for these films. Now it's time to get to my top five. Well, I take that back. It's almost time to get to my top five because mine are likely to be very different from what you might choose in terms of scenes or pieces of music in scenes from these films that are your favorites. And I want to hear what yours are. So I want you to tweet at bus blockbuster on Twitter and send emails to Matt's audioblog at gmail.com. That's M A T T S audioblog at gmail.com. You can also just go to mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S-audioblog.com, and use the contact form that we have there. And also don't forget that we are part of Double P Media. That's where you're finding this YouTube if you're looking on the YouTube channel. And it is also uh, just where I get most of my guest hosts. Bubba joined me a lot for the Wheel of Time. Bubba Catfish and I uh, have done numerous podcasts together. And they are, of course, the core of Double P Media. So I want you to be sure to check them out as well. If you don't feel like talking to me, maybe you want to talk to them. Tweet to at the word double the letters PHQ on Twitter. You can also find them at the same handle on Instagram. You can go to their Facebook page, facebook.com slash the word double the letters PHQ. Or you can visit their website by going to doublepmedia.com. That's the word double the letter P, the word media.com. Or you can also find the YouTube once again and leave comments there. YouTube.com slash C slash the word double, the letter P media. The other thing I would ask that you do for this particular podcast is wherever you're getting it from, whatever podcast app that you're using, and if it allows you to do so, please hit that subscribe button. Hit those stars and whatever rating you give it is the rating you give it. That's not for me to decide. I'm not going to sit here and say, only give me five stars if you don't feel it's worth five stars. All I'm going to do is just give it some kind of rating because the more you subscribe, the more you give a rating to the podcast and the more you leave written reviews where you can, it's very helpful to the algorithms to get me more noticeable among other podcasts that are covering various things or some of the big franchises that we're covering like Wheel of Time or the upcoming Lord of the Rings series. Those kinds of reviews are very helpful. And I actually want to take the time to thank some people for leaving written reviews. Most of them not so recently, but I've lost track of whose reviews that I've read publicly. So I want to do those real quick. Uh, Grumpy Gobert left this five-star review on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. Uh, thank you very much, Grumpy Gobert, for saying uh, stunning, brilliant, a great addition to my podcast library, insightful and in-depth reviews. Thank you very much, Grumpy Gobert. Back in November, Yup OK said, Double M, Master Magician, always a great show no matter the topic. Thank you very much, Yup OK, for your five-star review in the U.S. Apple Podcast Store. And Bob Shimoto, uh, back in November as well, November 20th, said, Wheel of Time goodness. 
These guys are so good at this. I love the book reader slash non-book reader combination. Now, some of those I may have read before. Uh, I just don't keep very good track of what I've said before, but I've got them written down now, so I've said them. I want new ones to read and to share, which I generally will save for the feedback section, but I just wanted to make sure to thank these people for leaving written reviews right away or as soon in the podcast as I could. Those all seem like very boastful reviews. I just want your honest opinion so that I can make this show better for you. So I'm going to stop the boasting now and let's get to our top five list. And as we get into our top five list, I also want you to note that obviously the performance of these pieces is just as important as the composition of these pieces. I can comment on these pieces and play them myself on the piano and, and show you how they're written out and that kind of thing. Uh, but I, due to YouTube restrictions and copyright restrictions, I can't actually play the clips from either the soundtracks or the films. So you'll just have to settle for my half-adequate piano versions of these themes. I hope that you will go back and review the films with these themes in your mind. But I also just want to compliment the performance of these pieces. I mean, obviously, if you've got a group of professional musicians, be it an orchestra or just professional studio musicians, it's going to sound a, hop, a heck of a lot better for each composition to sound that way than if you were to put the same composition in front of a bunch of sixth or seventh grader, junior high or beginning band students. <laughs> You're not going to quite get the same effect. And so never should the musicians who perform these things be excluded from the way that you enjoy these compositions. So much for that. Let's get to my number five by Lauren Balfe. It's a theme that is actually based on the main theme, or at least one little snippet of the main theme. And it's heard throughout the entirety of the film. But my favorite renditions are probably the versions right at the beginning of the movie, at the hangar, we hear it there, and also as Ethan is chasing uh, Walker to the helicopter. Now, something about Lorne is that he really enjoys exploring the duality of themes, meaning that he creates themes with a melody and with a harmony, but he might use either of them independently. He'll take a snippet of a melody and he'll put it over a new harmony uh, to create a certain effect, or he'll take the harmony from the original and he'll put a new melody on top of it to give some continuity, but also to give a different effect. But he has one particular motive or theme. He just takes a snippet of the original melody. And he isolates that second phrase. And he uses that as the basis for his harmony as well. Because when you combine both of the chords that he puts underneath that melody subconsciously your brain actually puts those chords together and you get a diminished chord. Now I've discussed this before in previous podcasts, but I haven't here yet. There are different types of chords. We've discussed a minor and a major, how one is darker and one is happier, but 
A diminished chord is what is created here, and this chord is probably the most disturbing of all of the chords that we hear in Western harmony. And you can say, you know, half tones and that kind of thing can create more dissonances, and that doesn't uh, necessarily make the diminished chord the most unresolvable. But because it can resolve in so many ways, because it is symmetrical, meaning that all of the notes are the same distance apart, and unlike with rhythms where we do like symmetry, what Pythagoras found, he was the guy who worked on triangles, and he also did a lot of applying mathematics to music as well way back in the day. And he found out that the more symmetrical harmony is, the more uncomfortable we feel. Why is that? Why do our brain chemistries work like that? Not sure. But usually it has to do with the fact that it creates more possibilities for resolution which is exactly what a diminished chord does. A, res a diminished chord can resolve to four different places at any time. And each of those four different places could have a different kind of chord quality. So that's getting kind of exponential. There, there's 16 possibilities based on one chord, and that makes our brain just rattle for whatever reason. And so therefore, diminished chords, when they are implied or when they are played directly, and in this case it's implied, that gives us a very unsettled feeling and that's why this one is my number five out of my top five favorites i love lauren balf and the way that he employed this but the reason why it's number five and not number four is because this kind of device harmonically with the diminished chord has been implied by other composers that preceded him. So it wasn't like it was anything new. Other composers within this very franchise. And that's why it sits at number five. One of the composers who implied this before him or applied this harmony before him was Joe Kramer with M.I. Rogue Nation. And it's at the ending where Lane is captured and they gas him. Kramer, in the movie prior, Rogue Nation, had used that same kind of harmony to create a motif for Lane, the bad guy. Uh, and that same harmony that I just exemplified in, in the Balf example is the same kind of thing. It ends up implying the diminished chord. But he also, as Lane is getting captured, uh, builds and builds the orchestra during this piece. And out of that Lane motif so to speak, he creates a bigger piece by adding the Mission Impossible theme on top of it directly. And it makes it dramatic. And it's very cool the way that he sets it up uh, right as Lane gets captured because there's this little misdirection of the harmony. Uh, you hear these chords first that are technically not part of the main piece, but they do lead into it. And as it resolves into the main lane motif, which I'm about to play for you, the the harmony and, and melody ends up adding the Schifrin melody as it all gets bigger and bigger.
Now, a couple of my favorite things about this scoring moment is the way that the timbres, uh, the instruments being played, they build up to the point where the brass is pronouncing that lelo melody very powerfully. And again, you can't get this from a piano. Uh, but you may have also noticed that of that lane motive itself, the melodic shape, meaning how high or low the notes go and the distance between, it becomes much more volatile towards the end. As, you know, Lalo's melody, the main theme, ends up coming in on top of it. And it's a great representation of Lane trying even harder and harder to get out more desperately as his motive gets more volatile, but the more victorious Mission Impossible force represented by the main theme and, and of course, uh, represented by Ethan prevails. Spoiler alert. My top three moments all feature the same composer. So some composers are going to be eliminated from this. I didn't say my top five moments from each composer or my single moment from each composer. No, one composer has my top three votes for favorite scoring. And if you've known me over the years podcasting about Lost, you'll know that that composer is Michael Giacchino. Spoiler alert. And my number three is Michael G. Kino doing the score with really just a piano as Julia tries to revive Ethan at the end of Mission Impossible 3. There are two timbres, two sets of instruments that Michael G. Kino really writes really, really well for. Those are the piano and the strings. It's actually one of the things, his ability to write for those particular sets of instruments that really made me fall in love with his law score and ultimately started a, a podcast uh, called Keys to Loss that I hosted with my friend Leslie Sonazaro. And that may be fortunate for you or it may not be fortunate for you, depending on whether you like my podcasts or not. But here we are talking about his piano writing primarily. That's the main instrument that is in this part of the score uh, while Julia is trying to revive Ethan after he had shocked himself in order to defuse the bomb in his head. And we're talking specifically about the piano and his impeccable feel for how to position the way that the notes are stacked on a piano from top to bottom, creating either this kind of longing effect or a sadness effect on a person emotionally as they hear the chords. And there's not even really any melody placed in this, but we, we call the order of those notes, we call those voicings, by the way. And it's because of his voicings and the way that he voices things so well that you can usually just consider the highest note of each harmonic chord, whether there's an, a melody independent of it or not, as kind of a quasi melody in itself. And, Within this particular piece, the shape of that melody or the harmony, the shape of the harmony, if you prefer, continually climbs upward. And you get this sense of like a spirit slipping away, going off of the world. And that's all as we worry that Ethan might not come back. And I remember at the time that this movie came off, uh, we was wondering, is Tom Cruise going to make yet another Mission Impossible film after this one? They could might actually kill him at the end of this particular 
film. And they found another way to do that, like him and Julia going off into the sunset, basically. Uh, but instead, uh, that was a feeling I think they were trying to create for that moment in this particular film, Mission Impossible 3. And as the pieces move from chord to chord, the harmony also tells a story uh, and helps us to make sense of why we're worrying or if we feel better. And I'm going to talk you through that as we go through this. Now, before we actually get to the piano part, there is this cluster in the strings, what we call a chord cluster, that creates this great tense moment as we start off. And it sounds like this. And then the piano comes in with chords as Julia begins to try the CPR to bring Ethan back. And again, I'm going to be talking you through this as I play each chord. It starts off with a minor chord, which, of course, immediately creates this dark feeling that Ethan might not be revived. That particular chord feels like it's going somewhere. It feels unresolved. Then we get a major chord, which kind of gives us a little bit of hope right there. But then it falls back to that kind of unresolved chord. Ooh, and now we get a deep minor, so hope is slipping away. There's a little bit of major, like, if I just tried harder, maybe he'll come back. That's a questionable chord. Is it working? That is what we call a minor five chord, and it keeps everything dark. Now everything's moving to a higher register and minor. Hope is still slipping away. No, 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 no. This isn't working. He's slipping away. And then we have those final notes, a single chord and note moving underneath it that continue to make everything rise. And it makes you feel like Actually, all hope is lost because it's still a minor chord. And then, of course, the part that I'm not playing is that it brings in the orchestra and the percussion in order to basically bring Ethan back to life musically. But I think that the use of that piano and the use of a single instrument just to take you on an emotional journey with a series of chords and the way that their voices is just excellent and the use of piano is one of Giacchino's great hallmarks and when he gets a chance to use it man does it work now it should also be noted that there are other factors that do contribute to the effectiveness of this cue within the movie itself one might be the recording technique of the piano itself it always depends on where the mics are placed in relation to the piano itself that can make a huge difference in how close or far away the piano sounds in the mix and the entire piece i think was probably actually recorded with some mics placed fairly close to the piano and some mics a good deal away and then they used mixing techniques um, either in tandem for the two kinds of sets of mics or separately in order to create the effect that they did of the feeling of a spirit really just slipping off into the distance, which I absolutely loved. And another factor was the way that the scene was actually mixed. The sound in the scene of Julia, at first you hear her pleading with Ethan to come back 
while she's trying to revive him. And as hope fades, you hear her sounds get mixed down so low that they're almost inaudible and you primarily hear the piano. And that is very psychologically and emotionally effective because it is isolating to see the pictures, but not hear what she's saying um, makes it feel like you're coming from Ethan's point of view and he's continuing to leave. He could hear her voices. Now he can't hear her voices. And that creates a great emotional effect as well. So there you go. There's my number three. Again, that was from Mission Impossible 3 when Julia tried to revive Ethan. Uh, it's already been revealed that all of my cuts from here on out will be from Michael Giacchino. And this particular cut, my number two, is really when the entire team is leaving the Vatican, also in Mission Impossible 3. Now, this is a really long cue, so I'm just going to hit some of the highlights here. But right after they find the manhole and, and pull the car over it and then say hello and start to climb down into the manhole, there's this string motive that starts. And remember that I said G. Kino does two different timbres really, really well. Well, strings or string sections is the other one besides the piano. And here... Against the main theme bass line, we get this wonderful little string motive. Now, I love it when a composer can put his own personal stamp on things like this particular string line, because this string line is very reminiscent of the string line that he used very often in the television series Lost. That particular string line sounds like this. It kind of has that same meandering kind of feel. And it definitely has a similar melodic shape in terms of how high or low the notes go. It's very Giacchino-esque, so to speak. In fact, given as geeky as I am about film music, I probably would have guessed that this was a Giacchino score based on that alone, even if I didn't know that Michael Giacchino was scoring this. It's that much of a stamp for him. But anyway, as that motive continues to build, then he takes the last notes from each phrase of the Schifrin theme and applies them as a harmony or a counterline to the string line. He takes each of the lowest notes from the melody. And then he includes them as part of of an additional harmony to the string motive. And the way that this theme culminates is that after they blow up the car, we get the full out Schifrin theme, but he also adds some brass to create a new counterline, making it even more complex and he actually changes the key. He raises it a little bit. He changes the center of pitch. And that generates a greater feeling of the mission being accomplished. Whereas you were a little bit lower, now everything feels like it's raised up. And so you feel much more accomplished.
another thing that he does at the end of it is he makes these last stabs. He makes some extra hit stabs with full big orchestra hits, and he doesn't ever quite resolve it. Now, I love the repeated notes at the end of these with these big orchestra hits, the things that just keeps cycling over and over, and, and it makes it everything feel off-kilter time-wise, and they don't actually resolve back to the key. Instead, you get the silence of the team together in the aftermath of the mission in the next scene. And that's a wonderfully done long scene cue that never really stops, essentially, from the time that they get into the car until we see them all coming at us on the boat. It's absolutely fantastic. So that's my number two. My number one, also composed by G. Kino. The theme itself was actually composed and used in Mission Impossible 3, but my favorite version of it actually comes from Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And that's what I like to call the Julia Ethan love theme, more or less. It is a beautiful piece of music, and I feel like the best version of it is done at the end of Ghost Protocol. When... Ethan and Julia see each other from a distance. I mean, this one is just beautiful. There's a couple of very Giacchino-esque kinds of things going on with this one as well. For one, there is a combination of the timbres, the instruments such as plucked strings, like a harp or a guitar. And then there's these lush over-the-top string section stuff that float kind of in all the spaces between the pitches. It's almost like they bend in a way or something like that. And again, this is the very kind of thing that he used to do with Lost. Additionally, the notes kind of cross. Some notes that start higher go lower than notes that were lower and are climbing higher. They kind of cross each other harmonically. And that is beautiful. It's just a very signature kind of sound that really elicits a lot of emotion. And I remember when I first saw this film and I started to hear that music. Actually, it starts when Ethan and Brant are talking about Julia and Brant starts to realize that Julia is still alive. And there's this tremendous sense of relief that this theme generates, that Ethan and Julia's love is still present. And the way that that affects Brant makes this music even that much more emotional. In fact, when I first heard this cue, I started crying. I started crying. I don't know if they, if I was crying like a baby, I was feeling relieved that he was feeling good, or if it was just because something instinctually told me that we were going to get an Ethan and Julia scene, and it was just tears of joy. I absolutely loved this cue. And the theme is based all around major harmony. Now, we've talked a lot of minor, minor harmony or diminished chords or that type of thing in this particular episode. 
But major harmony makes us feel happy, makes us feel comfort, makes us feel relieved, makes us feel good. And that's what this theme is all about. Comfort, resolve, hope, and happiness. There's also something kind of rhythmically that happens that I kind of liken to almost like a heart fluttering with emotion. And that, that's the changing of the subdivision of the beats in, in different places. Sometimes you get a straight eighth sound and sometimes you get a triplet sound with the melody. Um, a good example is in this part right here. And that switching back and forth of the subdivisions uh, makes this piece feel like, you know, a heart getting excited to see someone you love. And it also makes the melody itself feel much more organic than just a straight division one way or the other. If you had all triplets, it wouldn't work as well. If you had all straight eighth notes, it wouldn't work as well. But by combining the two, you get an organic effect. And that is my complete list of my favorite top five Mission Impossible music score moments. What were your moments? I want you to tell me. Tweet to at Bus Blockbusters on Twitter, or you can also tweet to at the word double, the letters PHQ on Twitter. You can send me an email, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com, or... Better yet, comment on the YouTube presentation if that's how you're watching it. You can get to us directly at the Double P Media channel, and you can find that channel and subscribe to it, youtube.com slash C slash Double P Media. And speaking of YouTube comments, I do have a YouTube comment that I need to address from our MCU Phase 1 Top 3 podcast. So here's some feedback. Oi, can we get the feedback out of the monitors, please? So, for my top three MCU Phase 1 films, I got this comment from our good friend Priscilla TV. She is what we like to call a double L, a loyal listener, or maybe a uh, double W, a willful watcher, because she always comments on the YouTubes. Anyway, Priscilla says, Hi Matt, I liked Thor a lot, more than many people I know, but I gotta admit Thor's eyebrow situation distracted me. <laughs> and Odin's relationship with his sons is the stuff of nightmares. A++ parenting skills right there. Oh, so true. Odin is not the world's greatest dad. Uh, that is for sure. Uh, Priscilla goes on to say, completely agree about Captain America. However, I must insist that you watch a very interesting take on the character which I'll just summarize for you guys here. It's a video that basically blames Captain America for being the everyman hero, but only because he is enhanced, and that he basically broke the rules by protecting Bucky, and that giving Sam the shield was wrong because Bucky actually should have gotten the shield instead of Sam, which <laughs> I, it's a very funny video. It's very entertaining. Uh, go to the MCU podcast on the Double P Media YouTube and find the comment for the link to that other video that she was talking about. I really enjoyed the video a lot. It was fun. 
But that's all that we've got for this particular podcast, except for a little bit of housekeeping reminders. There's lots of stuff coming up in the second half of 2022. Actually, uh, in the last three quarters of 2022, as far as the double P is concerned. One thing to look forward to is Obi-Wan is going to be coming back to Disney Plus. Well, coming back, it's going to be debuting on Disney Plus at the end of May and Parsec Passion. Baba and Catfish there, as long as my as well as my musical analysis, will be covering that at the end of May 2022. In June, Only Murders in the Building is returning to Hulu. And Bubba does a great podcast called Let's Solve Only Murders in the Building. He'll be covering that series starting in late of June 2022. Coming up in August, House of the Dragon comes to HBO, the Game of Thrones prequel series. So naturally, the Double P podcasts, Hallmark, The Jewel, the inaugural podcast for Double P Media, the Joffrey of podcasts, will return to cover that series. Bubba and Catfish are glorious in their coverage of all things A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, I love their takes on everything, the way that uh, they put everything in the proper perspective of our good King Joffrey as they talk about what they see on the television show. Here on Bustin' Blockbusters in September of 2022, we will be covering... The Rings of Power, the Lord of the Rings series, which will be on Amazon. Once again, find me at Bus Blockbuster on Twitter or Matt's Audioblog, M-A-T-T-S, audioblog.com for everything that I do, be it part of the Double P or not. Thank you so much for sticking with me for this particular podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time where I believe we'll be covering the MCU Phase 2. Take care. Part of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com.